Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm a feminist, but Lily Carl, I don't know if you know this, but years ago I sat next to you at a fashion party. I admit I'd crashed the party with a friend. We just sort of somehow talked her way in. And I remember sitting next to you thinking, oh my God, she's so beautiful. And afterwards I told a friend who said, was, was she intimidatingly beautiful? Like, did it make you feel not beautiful? And I said, no, actually. It was more like being in Narnia because she had a fawn-like quality. She was sort of all an ethereal being from another land. Because I remember you being very long of limb and also just very graceful. And it was almost like you were slightly another otherworldly species, like sitting next to someone in the elfin crew. Um, and I, so I said, no, no, I didn't compare myself to her at all. I just remembered how very beautiful you were. Um, that is a confession. Have I ever told you that before? You hadn't. Um, and I slightly wish you'd just come and said hello. I mean. We could have been friends I, earlier. 
I mean, I wasn't doing the Guilty Feminist or anything then. I think I was... A, I was oh, so then I would have not been interested in you whatsoever. <laughs> I think I wouldn't have had the confidence to say, uh, I'm a comedian, you won't have heard of me. I'd be like, I don't know, I don't know how I would have opened that. I think you seemed so of that fashion world. I might have, say we'd both been... I might have actually liked you, Deborah, without the I know, I know, I know, I know. world's famous guilty feminist credentials. It <laughs> is a possibility. I know, I know. <laughs> highly, I know. highly, highly, highly possible. I know, but it's having the confidence to say to a supermodel at a fashion party, I've crashed the party, I'm in comedy. Um, I mean, that like I would have enjoyed have... as a starting gambit. <laughs> you would have loved it, actually. Now knowing you, I would have. <laughs> Looking back, I should have gone... Have, I've crashed the party and you would have then found me the most interesting person at the party I feel but I didn't know that I just thought oh you'll be like security <laughs> why is this if I'm a feminist but though I don't see the hypocrisy in this oh I see I think it's an, I'm um, a feminist and I see I think it was me uh sitting and admiring your beauty and never confessing to you that I had sat next oh, to you in our friendship. I've never told you this. I've never told you. We that actually, is true. We've hung out before, Lily. We just didn't talk. I never wanted to say it because I was like, I have to go. When I was much younger, I crashed a fashion Oh, that's party. true. Yeah, because we've been hanging out for quite a few months now. And yeah, you, did, you neglected to mention that. I was, I've yeah. never said it. I, I, I'm a, when's the right time to say, Lily, I crashed a party and I remember sitting next to you and I've spoken about your beauty to another woman. Um, and the, the right time is <laughs> Live never. on a uh, on, uh, on, uh, recorded <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's always the best way because then it's immediately comedy fodder as opposed to a bit weird. Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, had I met you in a different context, had we both been sitting at a bus stop, I might have said, um, I don't know what I would have said. I don't know. See, now we've got so much in common. I think regular people don't think they've got a lot in common with models, and but now your you've your career's morphed so much as well. And but now that an you're actor, an such a, a such a supermodel yourself, you feel <laughs> <laughs> much more freewheeling. Well, um, so I am. I've been thinking about this one because I know the setup of your show, um, and there's a long list of I'm a feminist, but but I wanted to say I am a well, I identify as an intersectional feminist who identifies as queer. And I found myself falling for an older white man, I which mean, is uh, mildly disappointing and slightly curious. <laughs> of all the options that you had, Lily, of all the options that you had as a bisexual, really... intersexual feminist, you've gone straight for the older white man, uh, the straight, straight white cis man. I know. So um, it was qu quite a surprise to me. And as I say, mildly disappointing, but also, you know, I think a great lesson in in non-judgment, in, you know, in actually the practice of being open to different genders. Um, Is it okay to say I've genders. met him? Yeah. yeah then yeah, in that case, I'm going to say I've met him. And not only do I find him the loveliest person in the world, I also think he has a, quite a feminine energy. Ooh, yeah. It's interesting you say that because that was sort of my realisation because I was quite surprised by that happening <laughs> um, and it being so not the type I was looking for but that's what I realized it's like oh well, maybe actually I wasn't necessarily looking to date a woman as much as I was just looking to date a feminist I think that's and right quite feminine energy if you turned around to and me and said oh I'm an intersectional feminist and I'm dating a woman of color it's pretty Patel I'd be like um Lily <laughs> I'm a feminist, but one time when I was in Australia, I had to do a shoot for a big spread in the newspaper. It was way before the Guilty Feminist. I was doing a comedy show. 
And they made me stand up. This photographer, who was very serious, like high fashion photographer, made me stand up on a wheelie bin in heels in this outfit. And then he was taking pictures of my reflection in the window of a limousine. <laughs> and he was doing that thing of going, um, put your head up just a little bit to the, a, a millimeter to the right, just tilt, just tilt, and then left arm down. And, and that sort of, you know, when they micromanage your body, I don't know, maybe they don't do this to you because you're already in the right pose, but they micromanage your body until you are in pain and you're holding it for ages. And I remember thinking, yeah, I don't think I want to be a model. And then I immediately went, like anyone was asking. <laughs> I had this moment of going, oh, because Storm is going to be so disappointed when they ring me. And I go, no. Uh, but I but we this- have established your modeling credentials is why we're now friends. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is the only story I would have had to tell you. I actually do like posing for photographs. I do think it's really good fun. A lot of comedians hate it. A lot of actors hate it. And I really enjoy it. I have good times. Um, but I, only because I've allowed myself, and this is quite feminist, I've allowed myself to let go and find the joy in it and find the play in it. And a lot of my friends are like, oh, I hate it. And I, uh, if I have to pose with other comedians, they're like, how quickly can we get through it? And I'm like, is there a fan? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I really think it's a great thing to open up that way. Uh, but I do remember the very conscious decision that I didn't want to be a model and then going, Deborah. It's not really on the cards. Um, not that I'm not fabulous. <laughs> I don't mean that, but I do. I'm not a model. Um, did you have you ever had those moments where you go, "Oh, this is so painful and boring"? When they they're making you do these little, uh, these little. Oh micro my moments. gosh! Are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> I've had so many of those moments. <laughs> when I watch America's um, Next Top Model, they're always making them do really difficult things, like you know, pose with diamonds on their fingers and a spider on their face or something like that. They're making them do really horrible things. Is it like that? There was a lot of that, yeah, or being freezing cold in an awkward position in the Highlands, or um, which is one of the reasons I kind of like moved out of, of modeling full time very quickly. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah Francis White with this very special episode of The Guilty Feminist. Uh, today, I have joining me performer, writer, environmentalist, the incredible Lily Cole. Oh, hello. Uh, We're used to applause because this is usually a live show. So we kept that up all through the Zoom era. But um, you'll be delighted to know, listeners, that today I am face to face with Lily Cole. There is no Zoom going on here because we wanted to be in the room together as we've become quite good friends lately. And uh, I have been lucky enough to visit you in Lisbon and see how your life works. And I've been really impressed by how how much of your time you spend focusing on the environment, thinking about the environment, thinking about Mother Earth, and how we can uh, look after her better. I've been reading your book, um, Who Cares Wins, and I was particularly excited by the chapter about feminism and the feminine, and what the interplay is between the feminine and the feminist and the environment and our stewardship over the environment, or indeed Mother Earth's stewardship over us. Um, and I'm just dying to talk to you about it because I, you know, I want to deep dive into it. I knew you first as a model. So I think of you as, you know, when, when I first knew about you, I thought of you as fashion, um, high fashion. I remember once, I don't know if you know this, I sat next to you 
uh, in a, it was like a nightclub, which I think I had crashed some kind of fashion party with a friend in some club in St. Martin's Lane. We'd sort of talked our way in and I knew I was sitting next to you. You've never mentioned no, this. No, I never said this to no. you. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, she's so beautiful. She's kind of like a like a fawn or something, you know, in Narnia. Like you were you were sort of so otherworldly. You were very <laughs> limb heavy, like, not heavy, limb light, but limb long. And uh and very glamorous and glorious and slightly ethereal in your in your your ways. How do you go uh from being at the heart of the fashion world and very celebrated from the fashion world into somebody who is so focused on the environment and the earth? Because I don't necessarily associate those two things. Yeah, I mean, it's a very fair question uh, that I'm sure many people have asked themselves. (laughs) Um, But in a funny way, I mean, I think I would have gotten really involved in environmentalism regardless of working in fashion. You know, had I not happened to have the right aesthetic in the right moment in the right place to go into the kind of the madness of the the madness and the brilliance of the fashion world I think I still would have ended up being very kind of environmentally concerned and active because that's I think just dealing like that's just my in my nature to deal with nature you know and Mm -hmm. the kind of nature of the reality around us but I think I probably would have taken a very a different approach to it and I think actually I was really blessed to come at it through fashion because it sort of gave me, by working at such a young age, kind of in the deep kind of belly of the beast of consumerism and production and selling stuff, um, it sort of gave me this extraordinary education in how things are made and where they're made and the impact of products. Um, and and so it sort of gave me a weird lens on thinking about um, environmental issues and also social issues that if we don't look at like economics and supply chains, and how we are consuming things and what we're buying, then charity is not going to really do anything. It's just going to keep trying to band-aid a deeper and deeper problem. And so it sort of weirdly took me on a path that I think was very useful. Mm. And now actually I've started working with this UN organization, the UNECE, on building supply chain transparency. And they're focusing originally on cotton leather and then they'll look at other uh, products and industries because they, they recognize the need to kind of solve issues in the supply chains. And they approached me to work with them on that because they were aware of what I've been doing in fashion. So in a weird way, it's sort of all Mm. coming together. It's a complicated issue, isn't it? Because sometimes people just say, stop buying everything. And you go, yeah, that obviously would be ideal for the environment. But then what happens to people who's only living, who are living so hand to mouth in the global South and their only living is the fact that people in the West are buying so many clothes? Like what would happen? Like are there answers to these things or the answers slow, not fast? Do you know? I have some very um, strong opinions on that. I mean, I don't think that us consuming at the rate we're consuming is necessarily helpful to anyone in the world um, because the rate of consumption is actually based on a fast fashion model and the same would apply in other industries, fast business models that actually are very exploitative of people. And in fashion's case, that's a feminist issue because 80% say 60 to 80, but probably more likely 80% of garment workers are women around the world. So I don't think us buying so much stuff is actually helping anyone. And also a lot of that, um, the high level of production consumption also creates a lot of waste. Mm. Um, I was just in Chile recently and in the Atacama Desert in the north of Chile, they have the second biggest um, level of import of textile waste from around the world, the first being Ghana. And I mean, literally mountains of clothes, like mountains of clothes, many of which are like new or almost new um, are being left. Why are they wasted? Because we're just producing such an insane amount of 
of, of clothing nowadays that a lot of it isn't sold. And then even the pieces that are sold are often thrown away. They think something like three quarters of clothes made now are going to landfill. No. And there's 80 to 100 billion pieces being produced every year. Eesh. So yeah, the level of consumption I don't think is helping any anyone. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, there are environmentalists who say that we shouldn't buy anything new and we should only buy secondhand clothes. And even though I'm very supportive of secondhand clothing, I think it's a great option for many different reasons. I wouldn't go that far because I actually think a good version of production, a good version of um, fashion can be really empowering to different communities around the world and particularly to women because it is such a female heavy um, kind of industry historically. And so fair trade initiatives, I actually think are really important to support because it's a way of actually empowering people. And also if they're made with the right materials and in the right way, that it can also not be harmful to the environment in the process too. Yes. Uh, so we need to buy a lot less and have the people who make the garments paid properly. Yeah. And, and it'd be respectful. I mean, if you think when I also, when I was in Chile, there's a history of amazing textile craft in the country and from Bolivia too. I bought these really beautiful pieces of textile that were made in Bolivia and they actually used to trade between the indigenous communities in Northern Chile and, and Bolivia. And that type of production is really beautiful and empowering to different communities around the world. But actually a lot of that apparently has been displaced and, and a lot of these women have lost their livelihoods. I met an indigenous woman who said that, for example, her pottery doesn't sell anymore because it's because they're making like um, similar pieces in factories in China. They're writing the name of the town. I mean, talk about cultural appropriation on the piece of China made in, uh, you know, made in a factory in, in, in Asia and then shipping it into that community and selling it. No. At a different price. Yeah. And the same into happens. Into that community? Into that community. Yeah. Yeah. And tourists, Holy a lot hell. of tourists don't realize. Um, and the same with fashion. So apparently a lot of the um, traditional craft in Chile, and I'd say that in the UK too, has been displaced by importation of um, kind of factory made clothing. So interesting. We, we need to slow down. We need to buy less. And we need to close the inequality gap so people can afford to buy less, but at a fair and respectful price. We're not talking about people having to buy a £400 jumper um, with a designer label on it, but we're talking about people buying one jumper, not five in a year, paying a fair price for it. And, and then, then repairing looking, it. looking after it, repairing it. Yeah. Because if you buy something that you really love and that maybe does cost more at the beginning as an investment, but you really love it and you feel good about the story behind it, you're not going to throw it away in a year's time or two years time. You're more likely going to fix it. And, and I think just shifting that way of thinking towards like really truly loving the things that we buy and the stories behind them and then making a longer commitment mm -hmm. to looking after those pieces. I was actually thinking when I put this shirt on this morning, that I bought the shirt about six years ago, but it's a really beautiful shirt and how much I have looked after it. And I can't imagine getting sick of it. Like I can't imagine, I get compliments every time I wear it. It's very lovely. I don't overwear it. Like it's a really kind of important piece of my wardrobe. And I think that's, I'm trying to be more like that now because that's what my childhood was like. It was, you had clothes until you grew out of the clothes. It wasn't like, well, you're going out on Saturday night, buy yourself a new dress. It wasn't, that wasn't it really in the ether. And a lot of people used to, a lot of mums when I was growing up used to, not really my mum because she didn't like sewing, but it was really normal for people to go and buy fabric and a pattern. There was a whole pattern section in our department stores 
And your mum would make you something for the school dance, or as you got older, you'd make yourself something for the school dance. Again, not me, a terrible at sewing, but it, it was common practice. And you were sort of, people felt sorry for you if you weren't good at sewing, because you were very, you were more limited in what you could, what you could have. I found this amazing suit my mum has the other day that turns out she made herself. She didn't have enough money to buy clothes and clothes were much more expensive um, when she first moved to London from Wales. And she just like sewed this extraordinary like outfit for oh, herself. Yeah. Yeah. I had friends who used to get Vogue magazine and then think, what do I like in this? And they'd go and make a version of some, you know, they, they, they put their own spin on it. They weren't just copying some fancy designer, but they were like, oh, these colors are in or this shape is in. And it was really creative. And you've also got to be aware of where's your fabric coming from and all of that. But there is something kind of wonderful about that. And I wonder if if we're going that way. I was really interested in the feminine divine and the way different indigenous cultures had approached femininity and feminine power. And in turn, that idea having a relationship to the earth and sustainability and the environment. Could you talk a little bit about some of the indigenous people you've spoken to? Because you've done such research, like your podcast is so labor intensive, like you talk to so many people in order to make one episode. It's so impressive. So, although I think you've helped steer me in a slightly gentler direction. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've listened to your podcast and gone, Lily, how are you doing this? Like you just, the amount of work you've got to do to create one episode. So I think now you might be going to do deeper dives with one person, but if you haven't listened to Who Cares Wins, Lily's podcast or read the book, it's really worth doing because she has, you know, you think, oh, well, it would be great to know how Indigenous people around the world feel about this one thing. Well, Lily has gone and spoken to so many different people. And on the podcast, you can hear them speaking. On the audio book, you can also hear them speaking. If you read the book, you know, you'll see their words written down. So it's really worth looking at. For example, here's a couple of clips that give you the flavor. If we want to really respect life, we have to acknowledge the spirit of other beings. Mother Earth is speaking. Mother Earth is crying, but still with lots of love towards us. We got to listen. Nature will continue living without us. Can we live without nature? As indigenous peoples to share our knowledge, that knowledge goes back thousands of years and passing on certain original instructions on how to exist and how to walk on the sacredness of our Mother Earth. Hello and welcome to Who Cares Wins with me, Lily Cole. I'm deeply in love with and also very concerned for our planet. And in this podcast series, I want to unearth different climate solutions, including their contradictions and hypocrisies in our ever-changing world. So I have to say, when I... The book, the book is very broad. Um, I was being insanely ambitious and I tried to cover a lot of different topics in looking at different climate solutions. I think we worked out there's around a thousand different climate solutions in the book from technology to uh, politics to indigenous wisdom um, and then digging into all of those. And the one of the ones that one of the areas that surprised me the most was gender equality. And I found it fascinating to research and write about. And it sort of blew my mind how complex and layered the different intersections are between gender equality and the environment to the point that 
I remember writing it thinking this needs to be a book, like a whole book by itself. It was hard to make it a chapter. And in the podcast, as we're approaching that kind of topic, I've decided to make it a season as opposed to an episode for that reason. To give you some examples, I mean, there's, I look at the eco-feminism movement, which can sound a bit abstract, but makes a lot of sense to me, which sort of makes the point that by making the earth feminine, mother earth, um, which many cultures around the world have done historically for whatever reason and continue to do, we have psychologically and culturally sort of made um, a connection between the way we treat the earth, our mother, and the way we treat mothers, i.e. women. So the connection being explored is that um, the normalization of the abuse of women, which has happened for thousands of years, and you know, began arguably with women being made the first slaves when they were traded between different tribes, what most anthropologists think happened, um, then be made to make property, then, you know, let alone violence, rape, murder, et cetera, but given um, very different legal rights to men um, until relatively recently. And obviously there's still a lot of disparity that exists. But in that history where it was really normalized for women to be mistreated, it was therefore almost sort of hand in hand there was a normalization of the mistreatment of, quote, Mother Earth. When mining, for example, became a more and more dominant industry, there were quite a few writers that I quote in the book that were protesting that at the time and using the language of Mother Earth in order to protest it, you know, that we shouldn't be kind of cutting into the bowels of our mother, cutting into the womb of our mother, like physically hurting our mother. This is this extractivist, exploitative relationship with the earth was in language used to see, like uh, kind of framed as a way of like, we're raping the mother earth. And so that's the sort of, it sounds abstract, but to me it makes total sense that the normalization of exploiting, quote, Mother Earth has gone hand in hand with the normalization of exploiting animals, certain groups of humans, you know, including women, different classes, different races, et cetera. Um, and, and therefore the deeper work that needs to happen is really, like I guess, uh, bringing equality to the table on all levels, um, not just gender equality, but amongst all humans and amongst different species too, and our relationship to the earth and, re and recognizing our kind of interdependence um, as opposed to some kind of, I don't know, hierarchical um, separation. So for example, in the 16th century, Edmund Spencer, the author of The Fairy Queen, described mining as, quote, a cursed hand, the quiet womb of his great grandmother with steel to wound. In the 17th century, John Milton in Paradise Lost said, quote, Men also ransacked the centre and with impious hands rifled the bowels of their mother earth. And then when European forces started colonising North America, uh, there are different quotes from indigenous communities using similar language. So, for example, uh, this quote comes from the Columbia Basin tribe in the early 19th century um, that says, You ask me to plough the ground. Shall I take a knife and tear at my mother's breast? You ask me to dig for stones. Shall I dig under her skin for bones? Then when I die, I cannot enter her body to be born again. And most recently, the god-awful president, sorry to say that, <laughs> um, President Bolsonaro, I say that because he's, some of the things he's been doing to indigenous communities and the Amazon forest is pretty atrocious. Oh, yeah. He said, Brazil is a virgin that every foreign pervert wants. And so we still oh. see this language of like, of the female body being raped akin to the 
the uh, the treatment of earth mm. and i think that's the, that, that's just kind of really interesting kind of philosophical slightly abstract but i think culturally really important conversation i was looking into and then i also looked in in the chapter at more tangible things like the data around if women are in positions of leadership in like politics for example there is very clear data that shows we are more likely to get environmental legislation doesn't mean that all women will do that we've got some really good examples i think in british politics of women doing you know getting positions of power and doing atrocious things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it doesn't mean that men can't also be great leaders but that for some reason statistically more women in positions of power has led to more environmental legislation politically uh Why do women you think that is I actually try and I try not to speculate in the book because I think it kind of is quite dangerous to get into territory of why this gender gap exists but there's just lots of data that exists women are more likely to recycle women are more likely to be members of environmental organizations women are also on the other side of the coin more likely to suffer the consequences of climate change and there's quite extreme statistics around this um, and I think that's more obvious because women are more often caretakers and looking after the children staying back looking after the family and so they're much more likely to die after a natural disaster than than men are so there's all this really really clear data and I'm quite a sciencey person like I like data to back up any kind of argument or process and I try to not speculate why the gap exists but just acknowledge that it exists such that if we get women more empowered we are more likely therefore to solve the environmental crisis we're in mm-hmm. And then the other thing worth mentioning is around population growth and this is super complex and nuanced to talk about but project drawdown um was this project that looked at lots of different climate solutions um to make a kind of big case for what are the best ones to be investing in right now and um empowering women and particularly like providing sex education access to contraception and they saw as one of the biggest winners mm. Because when women have more empowerment, more access to contraception and sex education, they are more likely to have less children. Mm-hmm. And that will result ultimately as in us leveling out as a global population at maybe a billion people less than we're on path to do right now. I mean, it's not it's nuanced because you also have to talk about consumption growth. Like less people doesn't necessarily mean less consumption, depending on the way that uh, we're thinking about consumption, but that it does play a factor. And I thought that was just fascinating as a another argument to justify, not justify, not it needs to be justified, but yes, to kind of like to, make, to make the them, argument make like, case. yeah, we need to like empower women. And if we don't do that, we are much less likely to solve this kind of existential problem that we are all facing right now. Mm. Yeah, I read in your book that cultures that have a female deity are more likely to have a culture where the men share in the childcare, which seems absolutely extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But the iconography of that, the imagery of that, the assumptions around that, so much of the world we live in is based on ideas and stories that we tell each other and that generations tell each other. I think we really underestimate the power of story and the power of language. I love that you pulled out that statistic quote. Um, it was it was an anthropologist who came up with that after studying many many different communities. And for me, why I, I love it for a few reasons. One, I love it because it I think shows the fluidity of our kind of gender roles in society, and that they're not absolute. And so, like the idea that men are not natural caregivers to children is a, is more a social construct than it is a biological reality. And I love that because I think that if we make the gender roles and gender stereotypes more fluid then women have permission to be 
different manifestations of what being a woman might mean. Um, I also think it's a reminder that men also win from kind of dismantling the patriarchy for want of a better uh, phrase and that giving men permission to take on new roles in society will be so rewarding to men as well as women. Mm -hmm. And I look particularly at childcare and um, because that's, I think, one of the only areas where in only recent years, I mean, in the context of somewhere like the UK, women have had maybe arguably more power than men. And I sort of believe that if we want equality, equality has to happen in all directions, both ways. Part of wanting gender equality for women requires that we also offer gender equality to men in the areas that they might not have it. And I think fatherhood is an area, um, depending on where, where you're looking and exactly when, but um, that sometimes women have taken more power there. And so, yeah, I'm sort of looking at like the role of engaged fathers and how important that is. You say in your book that you and your uh, you and the father of your child, uh, your quite magical child, if it's okay to say, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, share agreed, sat down and agreed to share everything about childcare, bar breastfeeding, where he felt less able to step up <laughs> due to not being a lactator. I don't know if he felt, maybe he felt very able. I've not, I didn't give him even a choice on that. I just said I'd take it. <laughs> <laughs> very, very gracious of him. Do you think that has an impact on your daughter and the way she sees the world, that her father does everything her mother does? Well, it's not that he does everything that I do, because of course we're different people, so we'll have different approaches to life. But we have tried to just keep equality. And I'm sure that's, I, I mean, I can only imagine that's important. Obviously, I don't have a like <laughs> a placebo child that I'm running in parallel to compare. <laughs> um, you said you were sciencey. I'm very disappointed <laughs> by this lack of a blind study. Um, but for me, I, I think it must, I think I can only see that that would be a positive thing. And I also think it's positive for me and it's positive for him. You know, I think it's, of course, invaluable for him to have a really deep relationship to his daughter. And it's also invaluable to me that I have the freedom to be able to work and travel and do the things that um, I was doing before I got pregnant. And we've sort of both been able to support each other in, in that journey. Um, originally, I think the agreement, and it was sort of done as a joke on a post-it note when I was pregnant, but it was quite a serious joke. It was a joke, but it had a kind of serious intention, which is like, look, let's be clear going into this, what our expectations are. And I think probably originally it was written more for my benefit that I was making sure that the, the childcare was going to be equally shared because obviously the default for many couples is that women, without necessarily even talking about it, just kind of assume the, I guess, a bigger part of the caregiving role, which is totally fine if they want it to do that. And if both partners want to do that, but I think that needs to be more of a kind of conscious choice. But I think that there was also a kind of implicit offer for him, which was that if we separate, which we have, that I would really honor the 50% and I wouldn't do what I think, you know, a lot of women have done of, of also keeping the children more if there's a separation, which may be right in some circumstances. I'm not judging all situations, but I'm just saying, or maybe, I think maybe that, imposed upon the woman in many situations as well. And also imposed upon the woman. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not trying to generalize for other people because I know it's complicated, but we also have lived in a culture for a long time where women have been the dominant caregivers and mm -hmm. men have been more absent. And sometimes that I think has been in the case of my childhood, I had a completely absent father. And I think that was really had negatively affected me. And I guess I wanted to protect my daughter from that as an outcome. 
Um, but I also think that it can also be negative for the fathers too, if they, if they want to be more involved in the child's life and are having to fight for that. And so it feels like it can kind of cut both ways. Um, and I mean, we're still in the process. My daughter's six years old. I'm not saying we've like, we've solved it or it's done deal, you know, parenting is full of challenges. Um, but it just felt like a really good baseline and I feel proud of that and I hope that we can continue that and that all three of us will benefit from that. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You write in your book, and actually I wrote in mine about Indigenous uh, hunter-gatherer populations just splitting the care for children. Fifty, There was just no sense. It wasn't like, oh, you have to do this and I have to do this. It was just children were not seen as a female domain because before agriculture, whoever was not hunting or gathering would have the children or the children would go off and hunt and gather with as they got older. And so everyone worked about 40 hours a week and still do in hunter-gatherer populations, and everybody looks after the children. The the whole population look after the children, and it's it's not seen as this female uh, domain. I think we get so hung up on the models we know, and we think those are natural and right, or we have to fight against those. But I'm increasingly understanding the model for almost everything we do is constructed and historical, and it there's no right about it. It is just uh, practiced. It's well practiced. Um, You write in your book about uh, the Bundjalung Indigenous matriarchal community in Western Australia who operate according to three laws, share care and always tell the truth. Because it's a matrilineal society, the highest authority is the most senior woman. And uh, it's actually the older women who give the orders um, there's an idea that no one owns the land. Everyone 
is a custodian or caretaker of the land. And the concept of a human owning land is just absolutely alien to this community. You can't own pieces of your mother, they say, which is a fantastic way of looking at it. It's like you can't say, well, I, I own my mum's leg or my my mum's elbow, my mum's left elbow, which is how we treat the world. We chop it up and go, we own this bit, get off at, got off my bit, this is the bit, I only can't come over this border. And in this culture, you can own something you've made, uh, like a tool or a painting, uh, but you can't own a piece of the land. That is a much better way of looking at the world, isn't it, really? <laughs> and this, this ancient wisdom that is still operating today in Australia but we are not listening. We are not looking at those models. And Even I've, worse than that, not that we're not looking. For a long time, we've been completely patronising and racist and mm-hmm, dismissing mm-hmm. these different types of viewpoints as that, being, quote, genocide. Yeah, quote, uncivilised. Yeah. And it's how much more civilised is that than anything we do say or think? I mean, it's just so much you more. Know Gandhi quote, what do you think about Western civilization? And he said, it's a nice idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think it's important to, um, and I try and do this myself, to really not generalize about indigenous cultures because they're incredibly diverse and there's many of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, there are kind of really clear examples of how different kind of cultural organization has been in different communities. Um, And I try and look at those in the book and the podcast and other work I do um, because for me that that provides a lot of hope that the way that we organize our society is just like one way. And there are so many other ways that we could take inspiration from, learn from. And certainly, yeah, it takes a village to raise a child and the ability of any nuclear family to do that in a kind of isolated capacity seems seems difficult, um, let alone single parents and all the other different manifestations of kind of the parent family structure that we have nowadays. Um that but that that idea that you can't own pieces of your mother i mean the thing is are we going to then give up our real estate and say this is owned by you know not that i've got a piece of the land i've got a third floor flat so it's the land i know it's, it's a piece of air yeah it, the <laughs> land it's on is actually uh, i think owned by camden council and mine is my the, the bricks i own are three floors up so i own a, you bit own a of block air. of air yeah. i own a bit of air same yeah. i've had I'm, that same thought process with mine yeah i own a bit of air with, so i have some bricks in the air <laughs> so bricks surreal on, bricks on stilts and it's worth so much money when you think about god what could bricks on stilts possibly be worth well apparently you know in london in north london and it, it's like again what the idea of worth We are so caught up in these ideas. And I've been thinking lately, if you tried to invent most things that are normal to us now, if you tried to pitch them, if there'd never been this concept before, these things would seem so strange. If we just all thought that the earth's the ground we stand on, no one owns it, no one's allowed to say who comes where, wouldn't it be weird to go, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's like a kid in a bedroom going, you can't step over this line. <laughs> it seems uh, so strange. There, there are so many things that I think seem strange. Uh, the idea that a few people are in charge and make all the decisions uh, on behalf of everybody else. And you can only tell those people if they've got the job or not again every four years. So if they do something yeah, really democracy. terrible. I mean, I spend a bit of time on the bat on that as well. Like the, the R version of democracy hasn't really changed in a few hundred years. You know, if you think about every other industry, it's been completely revolutionized by, for example, digital. And yet the way we vote and how often we vote and how much political voice we have 
has strangely stayed very static. It's as if people don't want to give away power. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a really good point, actually, because if, I mean, I, I suppose the reason we don't vote digitally is they think it's too easy to hack and fake. Um, I look at lots of ideas in the book, like liquid democracy, participatory democracy. There are lots of different kind of models out there, not just voting digitally. Could you, could you make... talk a little bit about what those might be? What's liquid democracy? Well, hold on a second. I thought we were talking about owning land. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but, but, but you can't just say liquid democracy and then race past it. <laughs> What's liquid democracy? Go to buy the book. Um, <laughs> well, there's different people who've been piloting ways to evolve democracy into essentially more participatory. Like how do we give people more voice? And one of those ideas, liquid democracy, is that you could... Um, it's a bit like the Swiss, I mean, Swiss is not liquid, but I'll, I'll be going somewhere with this. The Swiss have a system um, that's much more participatory where there are regular referendums where people can vote on particular issues. And I think there's maybe four a year or something and then each referendum has multiple issues and people can table new issues if they get enough votes. So everybody can sort of have the opportunity to bring something to the table. Um, that frightens me because the most recent referendum we had in in Britain went so yeah 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 no I, I, I hear you in my opinion I hear you although I would say that with Brexit I mean firstly you'd, you'd like that functioning of democracy works if you have a really kind of uh, neutral media that has a lot more kind of laws around what they're allowed to say mm -hmm. and also politicians being held accountable for like what they're claiming and saying um, so I think that's a really important context to bear in mind and also I sort of think that because we're given referendums so rarely in the UK there's a kind of there was a hysteria around it and around Brexit that you don't see, for example, in the Swiss system because they're given that that option much more regularly. So I'm not sure it's the right way to judge what it would be like if we were having very regular, well-organized referendums in the UK. But anyway, so a more participatory system where people can directly vote on a particular issue seems like a really good idea. Um, direct democracy, it's often called. There have been some attempts to use technology to um, empower that. Um, so for example, in South America, um, in Buenos Aires, there was a woman who, uh, Pia Mancini, who ran um, ran for office on the promise that if she got in, she would just be a sort of like human channel for whatever people voted for through a technological platform they, they'd built that would be asking questions. Um, oh. And that, so that was their way of sort of trying to hack the system to say, we're going to do direct democracy where you can vote on issues and then the votes will actually turn into policy. Um, they couldn't get that done. So she was like, I'll be a human conduit to it. So there have been pilots like that around the world. The Swiss system seems to be working fairly successfully with that model. Well, there's been a couple of quite controversial referendums. And also, by the way, they didn't give the women the vote till 1971, which is yeah. also kind of crazy. But maybe that's because they had more power to give. You know, it's like, don't give women power because actually here it really means Mean something. something yeah. um, Anyway, sorry, I'm taking a tangent off. Liquid democracy is that idea, but as I understand it, that you can pass, because there are different versions of it, but the simplest version of it I understand to be that you can pass your vote to someone else. And so if, for example, there was a, a vote around a particular topic that you didn't feel you knew enough to vote on. So childcare, you don't have any kids, you don't want any kids or your kids are grown up. You can give an extra vote to a working parent. Yeah, or like a feminist issue arises. And somebody says, I want to give Deborah Francis White my vote because <gasps> I really rate her and I think she'll know the right way to vote. And that's amazing because then I could give my environmental vote to somebody I, I really rate as an environmentalist because I, I go, Lily, would you like my environmental <laughs> vote? Just as you're sitting right there and you've done a lot more work on this than I have. 
but I can't have your feminist vote because you also know a lot about feminism. So I think, uh, <laughs> but but that's an example. I could give it directly to an earth scientist, actually. Yeah. Like if I wanted to. Or adoption. You know, mm. it's not something I know enough about. I could give to you. Great. You get the idea. And there are lots of other things like that that people have been testing, piloting, that don't seem to have gained anything near like mainstream traction in a country like the UK yet, mm. but suggest that we can actually innovate on the model of democracy that we're Many used to. MPs can't even vote unless they're in the room, which is so... I, I think mean, I honestly think we're seeing the opposite of this going on, which is we're seeing active efforts to make it harder to vote. Yes. Um, yes. I like, mean, the oh, fact that you have there to... There might be voter fraud, so everyone has to have a photo ID. It's like, well, you yeah. just know what you're Also, you have to register to vote before you can vote. Like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's no real good reason for why that exists, but it's a great barrier to entry to a lot of people that haven't been organised enough to get registered in time, mm. which is often the youth. Um, yeah, I think that there is... A, has been a kind of... And it seems to me to be like an effort to make it harder for people to participate as opposed to making it easier for people to participate. Yes. And and this idea of voter fraud has come about through America. There is so little voter fraud. There are so few people trying to wing it so they can vote twice. It is not a problem. It is not going to affect the outcome of any election. So telling people, oh, you've got to have you know photo ID, what it means is that more marginalised populations who don't have the money to go and get photo ID and are less likely to have a driver's license and all those things are excluded. That's precisely why they do it. And in America, some politicians have been so unbelievably entitled to, as to accidentally say that's why they're doing it. I think in America, I'm not an, an, by any means an expert in this, but I've seen quite a lot around how voter suppression is being used as a tactic in different places across the US and particularly is quite racial. It seems to be quite racially motivated. Oh, I mean, so racially motivated. It's it's frightening. On the note of talking about outrageous things out loud, um, I think it's worth mentioning what's been going on in the UK with the Nationality and Borders Bill. Mm-hmm. We were both on a boat to try and protest against kind of perniciousness of many of the aspects of that bill. For example, the idea of sending people who arrive here illegally to Rwanda for quote, processing. And I found it kind of extraordinary that Boris Johnson has publicly said that 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 idea, the Rwanda agreement, would be a great deterrent. Because this word deterrence is something um, I came across a lot uh, quite a few years ago. I was in Samos, the Greek island, and I made a documentary about the refugee crisis there. And it was one of the most heartbreaking experiences of my life. I mean, it was probably one of the worst situations I've ever seen, um, how appalling this camp was, filled with children, um, no security, freezing cold, awful food, water kind of flooding through tents, mm. like just like like so horrific. And I, I couldn't get my head around how this was possible in Europe, that that Europe would be kind of enabling a camp to be in that dire straits. I think the capacity was maybe multiple times what it was supposed to be um, in the camp. And in interviewing lots of people for the documentary who are working in and around this issue from journalists to people at the UN to um, NGOs, again and again, I heard this word deterrence. And it wasn't at that point, as far as I'm aware, ever being used as a kind of public statement around what was going on. It was just all the people working in the space. That's how they understood why it was so bad. Oh, this is kind of quietly 
being allowed to become this bad because the idea is that that will deter more migrants from coming. That people will write home, text home and say, If we make it here. really awful, yeah. if we allow these camps to be really awful and neglected, that will deter other migrants from making the crossing. And it hasn't because people are running from genuine terror, horror, uh, yeah. warfare, just terrible things. And so even... It's not like you're like, yeah, it's a, it's a holiday, come. No, no, no. Yeah. It's not. People, aren't, people, I'm sure, are texting back and saying, you know, uh, I'm scared to go to the UK now because I might get sent to Rwanda. But, uh, but, it, but what I'm trying to say is that the fact that Boris go? Johnson said that word, this yeah. will be a deterrence. Like, it's this... Like, yeah. it's so callous, the ownership of the hostile environment. Like, let's make it so awful that we don't, yeah. That yeah, we, let's make the UK so undesirable that no one wants to come here. On the topic of private property, there's this lovely Rousseau quote I put in the book. The first man who, having fenced in a piece of land, said, this is mine, and found people naive enough to believe him. That man was the true founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders... From how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. Which speaks to the refugee situation as well as the bricks on stills. Yeah. Well timed. That we, yeah, we're chopping up bits of our land and saying, this is mine, you can't come here. There's so much homelessness in this country and yet there are so many empty buildings. And this also, we're like weaving together all these different threads, but this also is something I look at in the feminism chapter in the sense of um, questioning what, and I know you've said this question really powerfully a few times in your podcast, like what should the project of feminism be in late stage capitalism? Um, Because so many attempts at gender equality that are mainstream seem to just be putting women into positions Mm -hmm. of existing power structures without necessarily questioning or remembering the fact that those power structures were designed in a patriarchal history and that had had women been kind of equal co-creators of our society for the last few thousand years, we might have very different power structures and very different structures. So having an equal number of female prime ministers or female CEOs or female ownership of business assets and land is a worthy goal, obviously, in terms of equality, but is it going to fundamentally make the changes that need to happen? We need to or are we just turning... Re, re, and look at the women who've gotten into space. positions of power in this country, like Priti Patel. You know, often they're the, the solution. Ones who, uh, they're, often the women who can get through are just the ones that serve the interest of the posh white men. And then they're Or willing to like play that that same kind of, mm-hmm. uh, those same cards. Or don't think to question the model or or think, well, if I get in with the guys who are powerful, then I'll be protected. And they're not so worried about protecting people like themselves. They're just worried about protecting themselves and resourcing themselves. And I, I think- But maybe, maybe you're also like toxic femininity as opposed to divine femininity, which can manifest in men and women, I think. Oh yeah, completely, completely. And I, I don't think it's as simple as, you know, if we replace half the MPs or half the current cabinet with women, because it's like which women can get through and is this a sensible way of forming a democracy? Is this a sensible way of distributing power? And, uh, do, you know, is power something that is desirable for a small number of people to have in our society or should we be trying to shape it together? But then, of course, you know, every suggestion could be misused. You know, one, if you if we did have a liquid democracy, 
you can imagine some people trying to harvest votes and garner votes and saying, oh, over here, we're very, you know, give us your votes because we love science. And in fact, they're the bad guys. Um, so, you know, there's whatever. No system's going to be perfect. No though, right? system's going to be perfect. Evolving. Yeah. Um, but, but to rethink democracy at this point isn't a bad idea given the digital revolution. I know we also have another thing in common, which is ayahuasca and our appreciation of Mother Ayahuasca. Mm. And one of the recent times I, or the last time I did a, a ceremony, I asked, ayahuasca is a shamanic plant medicine originally from South American culture. And I was sitting with a, a, the Hunaquin tribe from um, originally from Brazil and Acre. And I asked Mother Ayahuasca, using your language, I don't know if I call her mother, but I asked Ayahuasca um, about the environment and what I could do to best serve the environment. And I was really intrigued by the kind of realization answer I had, which was empowering the divine feminine. Mm. Um, and I've been sort of guided by that um, the last year or so since that ceremony. And I was already going a bit in that trajectory, hence the chapter in the book. But for me, I mention it because it wasn't empowering women. Mm. It was empowering the divine feminine. And I can't pretend I understand things as complex as femininity and masculinity, you know, in any absolute way. But my sense is that these are like forces that exist in all of us and that the divine feminine exists in men as well as women. And that maybe that imbalance is what needs to be addressed globally and that women have work to do in ourselves too, to honor our own divine feminine mm. and be that version of ourselves rather than the pretty Patel version. Mm. Yes, indeed. I'm sure um, she's maybe a nice person to some people, but I, is she not currently a fan? No. Um, <laughs> I would suggest her her whether she's amiable to have a drink with to some people is irrelevant because she is in this context that we're talking about her. She has power and she wields it in a way that makes life worse for people who already have less and who are oftentimes desperate, and that is unforgivable. Maybe you should get her on your show. I suspect she would not accept that invitation because she will have heard some of my I'm a feminist. Pretty, parts. if you're listening, we'd like to invite you to a summit. To where a we discuss summit. some of these things and we ask you some we'll be questions. Very gentle. Certainly, I trust Mother Ayahuasca and Mother Earth much more than I trust Mother Home Secretary. Um, <laughs> One little other anecdote you might want to use yeah, later because it. it feels poignant which would be around when you were asking about the uh, Bungjalung community in Australia, that actually it was my experience of going to Australia and spending some time with um, Nick Tree and Lauren Wilts, who worked very closely with that community and learning about the matrilineal community. Um, and apparently there were many different matrilineal communities in Australia. Um, that was one of them. And learning about that coincided in my life at a time that I was also reading The Argonauts by Maggie mm. Nelson, amazing book. And uh, I did a acacia ceremony, which is the plant medicine used in that region of the world. Um, it's similar but different to ayahuasca. And that for me was like the kind of dawning of my feminism, which was quite late actually. I was in my 20s. And it came to me, I think, late because I'd grown up in a household of women, worked in a very female-centric industry fashion. And so I'd always felt quite empowered and it took me a bit of a while to like look around the world and realize that my experience was an anomaly. Mm. And I think, yeah, researching matrilineal communities, learning about it, and then having that ceremony and then reading that book all at the same time, I had this really kind of strong vision of 
uh, or sense of, it's hard to put into words, these older women who were the kind of leaders of that community right. and their energy. And I almost felt this sense of mourning that we don't, we haven't had that or done mm-hmm. that, like that we haven't in a way celebrated the older women in our communities for the most part. And, and still don't. And really. still don't, that's what I'm saying, generally speaking, and give them the kind of respect and power mm-hmm. to be guiding our society. And it was a very visceral experience. It's hard to put into words, but a very powerful one. And actually it was interesting now when I was in Chile, meeting with the indigenous communities there who've been uh, protesting lithium mining and trying to preserve their, their land, essentially, that for whatever reason, it was all older indigenous women doing the work. Mm-hmm. Amazing woman, Sonia Ramos, who's walked across Chile three times to try and protest to protect the land. Mm-hmm. And it was it reminded me of that experience. And this, yeah, this just, I don't know, some particular position of like older female stewardship and energy that has existed around the world in different cultures and that our culture doesn't seem to hold much respect or space for. And how much we can learn from that. I, Learning I from think, our mothers. Maybe it's as simple yeah. as that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we all need to like slow the mother issues. If we all like heal our relationship with our mums, the planet will be fine. I feel like that's a, that's a longer project <laughs> than healing the planet. <laughs> that's maybe like, that's we'll, the work. We'll, we'll, we'll cure the climate, climate crisis before we all heal our uh, subtle, fragile relationships with our mums. But um, maybe that's the work. Yeah, uh, very probably. As within, so without, as above, so below, mm. as the adage goes. Indeed. Lily Cole, it has been really enlightening as always. If you haven't listened to Who Cares Wins, the amount of research in it is quite extraordinary. The number of voices you will hear, voices you won't hear on any other show that I've heard anyway, is exceptional. And it's a really brilliant show. You should listen to it. Uh, There's a new season coming out very soon. I'm on it. You are. I Um, think you're our number one. I think you're kicking it off. Excellent. And also the Who Cares Wind book by Lily Cole, again, very well researched, um, so many brilliant ideas in it. Uh, get it soon. I'm not saying this because Lily's my friend. Uh, I'm saying this because genuinely we'll learn a lot from it. And uh, it's it's really lovely to be in her world sometimes and, and to see things differently and invite yourself to step through different doors, look through different windows and ask questions about the way things are and the way things could be. Uh, thank you for giving us some much needed hope and insight today. Lily Cole. Oh, thanks for having me. to because on the internet it says various descriptions of you for this how would you like me to describe you human being yeah i feel like human <laughs> being is too is too broad for our audience they'll assume that because we have we have so few goats on the work on the podcast now in the early days we did obviously <laughs> yes exactly um i do don't you, know you can choose i'm not um uh maybe, maybe in I'll the say, context of this you can um i don't know you i'll say i'll say performer writer and environmentalist okay The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com